Oh, hello there. I'm Melinda Catherine Gross. And I'm Michael Nixon. And we like to talk about murder. Well, you like to talk about murder, fictional murder, a <laughs> lot, uh, whether anybody wants you to or not. That's right. And Michael doesn't talk about murder nearly enough. So I would like to invite you all to join us as we explore the material of our favorite monster. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. Each week we will be discussing and dissecting the film and TV appearances of Thomas Harris's infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mostly, I'm going to try to get Michael to eat people. I won't. You will. I might, but there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Having a Friend for Dinner, available on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, bon appetit. Ooh. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Jarowski, and this week I'm joined by John Jarowski, returning guest, and also my co-pilot, Andrew Jarowski, to discuss Holly Martin's Anna Schmidt and Harry Lime from the film The Third Man. Welcome, John. Hello. And Andrew, glad to have you jumping in in a more uh, engaged role. Of course. In this episode. Uh, the Third Man is a 1949 British film directed by Carol Reed and starring Joseph Cotton as Holly Martins. Uh, let's see. This name is Alita Valley as Anna Schmidt and Orson Welles as Harry Lyme. And uh, quick summary of this. Holly Martins is given a job offer in Vienna by his friend Harry Lyme. But when he arrives, he receives the news that Lyme is dead. Martins investigates his friend's suspicious death. But in this quartered, ruined, double-talking city, it is well... Uh, not to take anything at face value. It's just uh, think of film noir and you're there. That's that's my summary yeah. of this. There, there's a mystery. Does the mystery matter? Sort of. Uh, it's mostly <laughs> it's mostly about can the just, mystery be solved? No. Sort of. <laughs> it's mostly about boy is the atmosphere amazing in this film. That's what this film is about. Mm-hmm. To me. Yes. Uh, and Andrew. Let's start with you. How did you first come to the film The Third Man? Uh, a couple weeks ago, John mentioned that it was on Netflix, and you said, oh, let's do that one. <laughs> and <laughs> That's how you came to it? <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, I I think I had heard of it in, you know, as one of the regular list of film noir things that aren't super readily available most of the time, and so, no, I haven't watched them. Um, but, uh, so, this last weekend... I put it on at first while we were cooking dinner, just so I could like, I knew it was going to be something I'd want to consume in part twice. And so I was like, okay, I'll have this on to the side and in the background while we cook for an hour and a half, just so I'm getting exposure and then we'll actually watch it afterwards. And so that's how I, that's how I got it. Uh, John, what about you? Uh, I remember, I, I might have heard about it before, but definitely with the AFI lists, I remember them talking about it. And so I was I kind of had this cultural awareness about it. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years ago, I was looking on Netflix for something to watch. And the third man popped up. And I'm like, oh, I know I know about that. It's supposed to be good. Let me put that on. And it was really good. And so when you mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there was an open slot for a film, I made some recommendations and the third man was one of them. And you were very excited about that option. <laughs> yes. Um, I was excited because this has been on my list of films. I need to go watch since I was in uh, a, a film minor in college <laughs> where look, I could tell you beats of this film, uh, like his, uh, his monologue about the cuckoo clock, uh, which is amazing. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the Dutch angles in the cinematography, I'd seen images of that. So but- many Dutch angles. <laughs> like these angles are, are, are so Dutch. Right, so I'll, much I'll, of the time. I will bring Batman this man. Didn't have so many Dutch angles. <laughs> I will bring up this comment. Um, Cause if, if you like Dutch angles, this is the film for you. Yes. A director friend of the cinematographer, after watching it, set the cinematographer a level with a note. <laughs> Next time you make a picture, put this on top of the camera, will you? <laughs> um, and, and so, like, I just knew this was one of the great films. And um, for a while, I just couldn't 
I didn't know where it was available. And uh, now that it's on a streaming service, it's like, oh, okay, I've got to watch that soon. And then you saying, let's do that. Like, what? this is one we could do. I was like, okay, this is going to make me actually watch this film I've wanted to watch for decades of my life. <laughs> um, and uh, it was so this is a great film. So, John, when when did you get to watch this originally? It was a couple of years ago. Okay, so I don't you, remember the exact date. So you have more exposure to it than Joseph or I did in, in having actually seen it. Yeah, I had seen it before this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, but I mean, who hasn't had an Orson Welles phase when <laughs> you're going to find out <laughs> uh, about a lot, a lot of his works. And, and so like just from that and, you know, his, his reputation and seeing a lot of his other films and, and reading about his life, I knew a lot about this one. I mean, this isn't, he, he's not the auteur on this one. Like he's, he's not directing Carol Reed is, and uh, he's, he's not, uh, <laughs> driving the, the the plot or the script the way he did it's of his i mean he's, he's not even out of in trouble with the studio system because he was so he, he's not even in it until what the last third it's over an hour before he shows up Spoiler okay and it's, it's, it's an hour and a half movie no hour 45 minutes <laughs> and he doesn't show up for over an hour and well, he's and, the title character okay. so uh no this is important if you can go in blind on this having not heard anything do so mm-hmm that's now fair. this is seventy years old and it has a lot of cultural yeah. permeation, so that's hard to do. I went, I even watching it a couple of years ago, I didn't go in blind. I knew something, some of the twists that were going to come, and I think if you can go in surprised, do that. And if you can go in without seeing the credits beforehand, because you see Orson Welles, and that's going to be one of the names you recognize. Yeah, and so you're going to be looking for him. He's not there for a while. <laughs> But no if, you don't, Andrew, don't if you don't know that's coming, it's great. <laughs> I, I I do also just want to say, like his moment when he first appears, his look to the camera, like how is this not a gif that's been used all the time? It is such a great. Oh, it's this this, this seems quite memeable. Oh, it's yes. one of the great moments in filmmaking. Yeah, like his when he, when he walks in, he doesn't have any lines. You just see his face and the look he gives. I'm like that is just this moment of establishing I am a star. And you are going to feel my presence right now. <laughs> right, I remember. I remember the first time watching this, and I haven't seen a lot of Orson Welles films, but yeah, like he, he and we'll get to it in the log summary. But he shows up and he gives this little smirk, and I'm like, "Oh, you're charming. I want to get to know you yes. better." And then, <laughs> and, and then you get to know him better, and it's and, not great, <laughs> but still so charming. <laughs> yes, he's charming throughout. Like it's it's one of those, like this is the charismatic. I, I mean, we're getting into spoiler territory, but the charismatic villain, the mm-hmm. charismatic bad guy, you see why everyone has gone along with these terrible schemes because he just seems so smooth and smart. And he explains it in such a way that you don't want to argue against it, even though, you know, you should like all of these things. And I know that's the performance, but that also means that Orson Welles can do that. Well, it, and he makes you feel special when he's talking to you. Yes. Like he, uh, even though you, you want to be angry at him, you're like, but G is it good to see you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get all, into all of and, this. And I, I'm also going to say, Joseph, when you mentioned um, the monologue about the cuckoo clock, when my wife and I watched this, after that was done, after that scene was was wrapping up, I I actually made a point of saying, that was really good. Like, out loud, I was like, that was a great monologue. Like, that, like, that was an all-time film just sequence. All right, well, I'll go ahead and spoil this from my uh, trivia section. But that uh, little line was written by Wells. They needed the director uh, a said, button on like that. The, yeah, the director said, we need an, uh, like another minute here. We needed some button. And Wells came up with the famous line about uh, that. I do have it written down. Uh, you know what the fellows said in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did they produce? The cuckoo cock. Now, great line, patently false. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the Swiss did not create the cuckoo clock. And during the time of the Borgias, the Swiss had one of the most powerful armies in Europe. I, 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 but, <laughs> but I don't want to argue yeah, with him, but even if a, I know he's yeah, wrong. It is a great line. <laughs> and it makes you think that it's true. Yes. I saw that monologue done in a uh, acting class in college that I was in. Orson Welles does it better than 
my fellow student or I could have possibly <laughs> delivered that. Like I didn't deliver it. I'm not, I'm not knocking my fellow student on that and saying he did a bad monologue. It's just Orson Welles, something about his delivery. It's just so uh, simultaneously like off putting and endearing <laughs> the way that he yeah. says it. Yes. Well, yeah, and, and like, the way he says old man, yeah. it's like, it's condescending, but also like, it's, it's like a warm embrace. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you want to like this guy. Yes. Like, to the point where you might delude yourself. Yes. All right. John, you went down a rabbit hole of trivia about <laughs> the third man. And this is one of those films that um, doesn't have necessarily, like, the broad pop cultural cachet of some older films that have just, like, indelibly, like, shaped the DNA of entertainment. It doesn't have that cachet, but it has hardcore film nerding out cachet, which yes. means there's cachet. a lot of trivia about this film that's available, even though and, you, you might not think, yeah. like, the way Star Wars has, you know, 1,000 individual podcasts released daily on the subject of Star Wars. It's not like that, but it has, like, the film uh, auteurs are, are all in on the third man. Yes, so this was uh, considered one of the great films, and like you said, uh, it's 70 years old, and so you have a lot of history. It has become even though you don't know it, part of the cultural DNA. Uh, but yeah, if you're a hardcore film nerd, this is a, one of the films you're going to study and really get into. So um, it won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Uh, in So it was released in the United States in 1949. So I guess this would be the 1950 Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had, was also nominated for Best Director in Film Editing. I want to it give a shout out to the, the cinematographer. It is... Uh... Oh, where did his name go? I had it written down. Oh, Robert Krasker, because the cinematography in this, as I was watching it, I just, every time I looked at the screen, I'm like, oh, that should be printed out in, in a textbook on framing, like on, on, how, on mise-en-scene, on how to set yeah. up, how to set up a shot. And it's not, um, sometimes when you have those shots, it's so controlled because it's in a, a studio and the cinematographer has complete control of everything on set. This was shot on location and he found the perfect way to film on location and make shots that just, you're kind of like, Oh, this is filmmaking. This is what yeah, filmmaking so this, should be. So this is set in post-war Vienna. Uh, and they went and filmed in 1947 in post-war Vienna. And um, so like, these are how, this is how Vienna looked right then. And I've, I've um, poking around a little, I saw an article about how, um, in Vienna, the, they were excited to have the film come, and then they watched the film, and they didn't really like it. Like it, it wasn't very well received. Yeah, in Vienna, and the reasoning—it's not a—it's not a great painting of Vienna. Well, well, and and one thing that I saw is they said uh, at this point in 1949, people in Vienna were ready for some escapism. <laughs> yeah, something to, oh, to no. release them from the modern day version of Vienna. This film is not escapism, and it is like assertively reveling in the difficulties of modern day Vienna. Yeah. So uh, American British critics loved it. Critics in Vienna weren't in love with it. And there were some communist critics who didn't love it because of how the Russians were portrayed. <laughs> um, now, while we're still talking it's about It's really hard to nail all those quadrants, just, you know, as far <laughs> as fan reception. <laughs> um, I, I, I think this would still fall under the cinematography, but the lighting and the use of shadows in this is also like astounding it's just in some parts there's a moment oh just (laughs) there's a moment towards the end where it's from like a good distance there's a man carrying balloons and he's just walking to a corner and you see his shadow projected huge on one wall on on a side of the screen and then he gets to the corner and he keeps walking and then it's suddenly a small shadow on another wall on the other side of the screen and i don't know who could set up lights to do that But it was fantastic. Yeah, I was like the the transition of that shadow across the screen was I, like I went back and watched it again. I'm like, how did they do that with the shadows? It's the, so good. The use of shadow is incredible. Uh, they do so many things with it with that lighting and with light and dark because it's a black and light yeah, film. So it's so it's these so are all harsh. These are all hallmarks of the noir film style. Mm-hmm. There's one scene where uh, Harry Line, who spoiler, he's not dead. He steps out. Uh, <laughs> And he's wearing, like, he's, he's lit from it. Like, this is a pretty distant shot. He's on top of a building, actually, when he steps out. He's wearing all black, and somehow 
the black gives perfect highlights <laughs> to outline him. <laughs> and then they do the close-up, like, how are they doing that? Against a black bl- sky. With this black outfit against a, a ru- you know, scene of rubble and a black night sky. And yet it highlighted him perfectly. Again, I don't know what the lighting was, but they nailed it. Right. All right. So back to the trivia <laughs> for a moment. Um, this also won the best British film at the British Academy Film Awards and the Grand Prix at the award at Cannes. The American Film Institute voted it the 57th greatest film, American film, in 19, on their 1997 list. But it somehow didn't make the cut 10 years later when they revisited it. Uh, AFI also voted it the fifth, fifth best mystery uh, above things like Maltese Falcon and North by Northwest. Uh, the 75th most thrilling film and Harry Lyme as the 37th, 37th best villain. In 1999, the British Film Institute voted it the greatest British film of all time, and other British lists constantly in the top five. Now, we'll briefly give a caveat here of how it's on both American film and British British film. This was a co-production, and so you had American producers and British producers. The stars were American, but the crew and most of the other actors were British. Mm -hmm. So that's how it is able to have this crossover. Question, and you might be getting to this. Is it on the National Film Registry? Because it needs to be. I don't know that one. If you want I, to look I think that this up. one should be on the Film Usually Registry. I see it pretty early on when I'm looking at trivia, and I did not come across that. Um, yeah, if that's not on there, it should this, be. This one would be, I think, a good contender for that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have found it on a lot of people's personal lists, including uh, guest Henry Dorowski, who has put it on his list of uh, 100 Greatest Films. And though he hasn't ranked his films, he said it, it would probably be in the top 30. So uh, that's a challenge for you, Joseph, to create a list of your 100 best films for the podcast and yeah. present that at some point. <laughs> um, I, so the, just real quick, uh, while we're still talking about some of the, yeah. the awards that I had, uh, the director, Carol Reed, he did win an Academy Award for Best Director. Do you know what film he directed for which he actually won Best Director instead of just being nominated? Mm, 40s, and, 40s and 50s. Was it film noir? No. I will go with... Oh, okay. Go ahead and throw in your guess. uh, I will go with The Greatest Show on Earth. No, no. Andrew, do you have a guess? No, I don't. Think 1960s musical. He directed Oliver. West Side Story? (laughs) Oh. Yeah, 1968. He finally won his Academy Award. (laughs) Well, that's a good long career. Uh, the screenplay is by Graham Greene. Uh, Greene, in order to get in the mood to write the script, wrote a novella to flesh out the characters and atmosphere and mood. He never had meant for the novella to be published, but because the film was so popular, they did uh, publish it afterwards. And it does have a slightly different ending, which we can discuss after the long summary. I've just checked. It is not on the film registry. Well, I'm sure it will come up in the next few years. The, the Thin Man is. Well, that's not the same as The Third Man. <laughs> Another good, another good film that may be discussed at a future date. I, I think that, uh, that one's on our list to get to. Yeah. Uh, Green worked for MI6 during World War II, where his supervisor turned out to be a Soviet spy. And this is thought to maybe be an inspiration for Harry Lyme. Uh, Green was also shortlisted for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 66 and 67 for his novels. Not a lot of screenwriters can say that. It's pretty, I think, it's pretty good. Uh, Faulkner, and maybe there might be another one. <laughs> Orson Welles was not the first choice for Harry Lyme. Uh, Cary Grant was considered, but when the characters were switched to Americans, uh, Roger, Robert Mitchum was the first choice because he was very popular at the moment because he had just been arrest- arrested for marijuana possession. However, Mitchum was in jail for marijuana <laughs> possession when they were filming. <laughs> and Welles, uh, trying to fund his production for Othello, agreed to play Lyme. And the producer, David O. Selznick, was not excited about this. He didn't think Welles was going to bring in any money by being in the film for as iconic okay we can't do this just know wells (laughs) has a very interesting history with hollywood for someone who is (laughs) often hailed as uh having directed and started the greatest film of all time citizen kane it's uh it's messy his history with hollywood studios and sells nick personally as well yeah um other actors considered for holly martins include noel coward and jimmy stewart uh, speaking of producer David O. Selznick, he actually cut 11 minutes 
when it was originally released in America uh, from the British version. Um, there's at least one scene that would not have passed censors where there's a burlesque dancer in the background. Uh, so that was one of the cuts. But uh, what is made available now, including on Netflix, is the full British version. Uh, in the chase scene at the end through the sewers, they were meant to be filmed in the actual sewers in Vienna. But uh, Wells was down there for one day and said, nope, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> uh, so they built a set in London where they filmed his part of it. And they had, uh, I, I, I did come across who was his, not quite stunt double, but who was his replacement in some of the scenes. So anytime there's scenes with running water, that's the actual sewer. Okay. Uh, if the water is stagnant. Yeah. If it's cl- or a close up on Wells, it's probably on the set. Gotcha. Which uh, I would do want to talk about the editing of that scene when we get to it. Wells reprised the role of Harry Lyme for a prequel radio series, The Lives of Harry Lyme, which ran for 52 episodes in 1951 and 1952. A television series called The Third Man ran for 77 episodes between 1959 and 1965, which Wait, what? when you consider that there's there's only this like one scenario where he, Harry Lyme is referred to as the third man. But they did 77 episodes? Yeah, of him as the third man. Um, now, of course, I had no idea. the series... <laughs> the series had to uh, recast Lime a little bit uh, since they are recast and recast. Well, no, it is Orson Welles. Oh, okay. Uh, on the radio show, right. not not on the TV series. Okay, uh, but they uh, had to recharacterize him, so he's more of a soldier of fortune or a gentleman thief or a con man uh, instead of the villain that we will see <laughs> in, in the actual film. He's a pretty bad guy. Yeah. Now, okay. Last bit of trivia: the third man theme. So this is a very unique score in that it's all done on zither. Okay. Uh, the third man theme became an international bestseller when it was released after the film. It is fantastic music. Do you happen to I know do remember thinking about that. How many pure zither scores have been bestsellers? This one? <laughs> I imagine there's only been one zither hit. <laughs> okay. All right. uh, this, the score was composed and performed by Anton Karas entirely on the zither. Because the director wanted a sound that was appropriate for post-World War II Vienna, but didn't want to rely on heavily orchestrated waltzes, uh, Viennese waltzes. But the director discovered Karras playing in a tavern and then asked him to compose a film score. And this involved Karras being flown to England, staying at the director's home for like six weeks, while the film was translated into German so that he could understand it and create a score. Okay. Uh, He did great work. Yes, it was also his one hit. He actually did not like the fame that came with it. Uh, but Roger Ebert wrote, has there ever been a film where the music more perfectly suited the action than in Carol Reed's The Third Man? And that's just one bit from uh, Roger Ebert. This is one of uh, on the list of his great films. So that's a lot of recommendations. So this is a great film. <laughs> just real quick. I'm looking at the Roger Ebert uh, review and there's one line that I think deserves to be read it says vienna in the third man is more is a more particular and unmistakable place with asterisks around the word place uh than almost any other location in the history of the movies the action fits the city like a hand slipping on a glove which yes Uh, yeah this is one where the city is absolutely a character and you could not have told this story in any other and the the city at this moment in history like you can't go film the third man in Vienna, any other moment than when they actually went and filmed the third man <laughs> in Vienna. Yeah. It'd be very hard to kind of do a remake of this today because in any sort of modern take, oh, especially any modern take, but even trying to set it back in the forties, trying to find a place that could do this yeah. would be really hard. All right. Well, before we go on to the long summary, which again, the plot is not as important to this film. I feel as the, uh, just the mood and uh, the, the visuals that are there. It's, it's, it's a very interesting film to digest because of that, which I think is true of a lot of uh, film noirs. But before we move on to that summary, which thank you, John, for tackling this particular summary, uh, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode and for listening. And we want to thank those of you, especially who support us on Patreon. 
If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and also give up- updates on our fantasy box office game for 2019. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now, John, would you uh, like to try and explain the plot of The Third Man? Well, I didn't put as much effort into this as I have in some other works because this summary will be liberally plagiarized from the F- AFI summary with some support from Wikipedia. Well, uh, let's uh, not say plagiarized, <laughs> uh, let's they, say properly cited. Uh, this is going to be coming <laughs> from the AFI description. I was having a little fun there. Yeah. Uh, so yes, they just they did write it better than I probably would have. So, The Third Man. Opportunistic racketeering thrives in the damaged and impoverished city of Vienna, which is divided into four sectors, each controlled by one of the allied occupying forces, American, British, French, and Russian. American pulp Western writer Holly Martins arrives, penniless, at the invitation of his childhood friend Harry Lyme, who has offered him a job. Harry goes to Holly goes to Harry's apartment and is told by the porter that Harry was run over by a car and killed. Holly rushes to the cemetery where he finds Lyme's funeral in progress. As he leaves the gravesite, Martins is approached by a British officer, Major Calloway, who offers him a ride and buys him a drink. When Calloway tells him that Lyme was a notorious racketeer, Martin drunkenly vows to prove him wrong. Later at his hotel, Holly is approached by Crabbin, the head of a cultural institute, who mistakes him for a prestigious novelist and offers to pay for his stay in Vienna if he will speak at one of their meetings. Viewing this as an opportunity to clear his friend's name, Martins decides to stay in Vienna. He soon receives a call from Baron Kurtz, who identifies himself as a friend of Harry and arranges to meet Holly at a cafe. Kurtz describes Harry's accident, how he and Harry's Romanian friend Popescu carried the dying lime off the street, and how Harry then gave instructions to take care of Martins. Holly inquires about the beautiful woman he saw at the funeral, and Kurtz replies that she was Harry's girlfriend, Anna Schmidt, an actress at the Jehovahstadt Theater. Holly calls on Anna after her performance, and she tells him that, coincidentally, Harry's personal physician, Dr. Winkel, happened to show up at the scene of the accident, and that the man behind the wheel of the car was actually Harry's driver. Very coincidental. (laughs) Anna expresses her suspicion that Harry's death was not an accident, and accompanies Holly to Harry's apartment to question the porter. Contrary to Kurtz's account, The porter says that Harry was killed at once, adding that an unidentified third man was present and helped carry the body. When Holly escorts Anna to her apartment, they find Calloway and members of the international police force searching her room. Calloway confiscates Anna's identification papers, claiming they were forged, takes her to the police station, and questions her about one Joseph Harbin, an employee of a military hospital who recently disappeared. After Anna is released, she and Holly go to a nightclub, where they are joined by Kurtz and Popescu, and Holly relates what the porter told him about the third man. The next evening, Holly and Anna set out to talk to the porter again, but as they approach the building, the neighbors tell them that the porter has been murdered. The crowd turns on Holly with suspicion, and he runs away. When Holly returns to his hotel, he is promptly whisked away by Cr- to Crabbin's Cultural Institute. The badly shaken Holly stumbles through his guest appearance at the literary salon. Popescu Which, arrives and asks Martin. That, that appearance at the salon just reminded me of some rough academic presentations I've seen at conferences. <laughs> it was a it was a nice bit of levity in the film. I mean, but Joseph, are do you think that any of those academic conferences have been dealing with somebody who is investigating the murder of their friend and thinks that somebody has come to drive them to their doom? but instead is taking them to an academic discussion. I don't want to reveal not any plots of works in progress I have. <laughs> <laughs> and, and whether or not those works in progress are based on true events. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Popescu arrives and asks Martins about his next book. Holly answers that it will be called The Third Man, a true crime murder story. Martins then sees two thugs approaching and flees. Martins goes to see Calloway, who tells him about Vienna's black market for penicillin, explaining that racketeers like Lyme often increase their profits by diluting the drug, which has led to many patient deaths. 
Calloway says that Harbin worked for Lyme, stealing penicillin from laboratories, and shows the evidence his men have collected implicating Harry and Kurtz. Holly is appalled by his friend's action and goes to Anna. He tries to play with Anna's cat, but she informs him that the cat only liked Lyme. The cat leaves and curls at the feet of a shadowed stranger across the street. Holly tells Anna that he is returning to the United States, then admits he has strong feelings for her. Anna, however, is still in love with Lyme, despite knowing about his actions. And suspecting that he's dead. Yeah. (laughs) After leaving Anna's apartment, Martin sees the cat and then notices the man standing in the shadows and dares him to reveal himself. And in one of the great reveals of film history, an irate neighbor opens a window and the light falls across the face of Harry Lyme, who then disappears before Holly can reach him. Holly summons Calloway, who traces Harry's escape route and discovers an abandoned news kiosk leading underground to the main sewer. Calloway has Harry's coffin exhumed and the body inside turns out to be Harbin's, the orderly who was stealing penicillin for Lyme. Using Kurtz as an intermediary, Martins arranges a meeting with Lyme at an amusement park Ferris wheel. In a monologue about the insignificance of his victims, Harry smoothly dismisses Holly's moral outrage at the penicillin racket and warns his old friend to stop talking to the police. Undeterred, Harry offers to help the police capture Harry in exchange for safe passage out of Vienna for Anna, who is about to be arrested by the Russians. When Anna furiously rejects the deal, Holly wants to quit but Calloway takes him to the children's hospital to see some of the brain-damaged young victims of Harry's racketeering. Heartsick over what he sees, Holly agrees to act as a decoy to capture Harry. After waiting for Harry for hours in a cafe, Holly is joined by Anna, who berates him for working for the police. When Harry arrives, Anna warns him, and and Harry escapes into the sewer with Holly and the police in pursuit. Harry shoots and kills a British soldier. Wounded, Harry tries to crawl through a grate to the street above, but is unable to. That's one, another one of the great shots of his fingers reaching through the grate and being unable to move it. It's beautiful. Martins confronts his friend, and when the camera cuts away, a shot rings out, and Holly returns. After Harry's real funeral, Holly watches in despair as Anna silently walks away down a long, tree-lined avenue. The end. Oh, thank you, John, and AFI and Wikipedia for, for, for that story. And I will say that the uh, one of the differences in the novella uh, is that in the ending, uh, after Anna walks by, Holly actually catches up to her and they walk off together. <laughs> and uh, Graham Greene has later acknowledged, and eh, the director and the producers probably had it right <laughs> when they went with the other ending. <laughs> but she just walks by. Yeah. So what do you guys want to talk about? Because it's really good. So you got some options. Yeah. I, um, so right. we, we the last film noir that we did was uh, The Big Sleep, which in talking about – we Was that really the last one? I'm pretty sure. Uh, but when we talk about that with wow. Todd, we kind of said this plot is a bit incomprehensible. <laughs> like trying to follow the threads of those mysteries don't make sense. This one is definitely more comprehensible uh, than that. But even with that acknowledgement that – the, the mystery makes a lot more sense than, than something like The Big Sleep. It is still so much of this film and why I think it is great relies on um, the atmosphere that is created. We've talked about some stories that we do are really character driven. Some stories that we've talked about are really thematically driven. This one is, is just atmospherically driven, but it's still so satisfying to watch. Like I said, just constantly when I was looking at the screen, I was like, oh, that, that should be framed. Uh, just the, the way everything yeah. got put together and the use of, again, these real locations. It's astounding to me how much control um, the, the director, uh, Carol Reed, and the cinematographer had in, in building the mise-en-scene to be so evocative as you look at this black and white film. Yeah, because part of it is that it's this descent into the darkness of the city and that descent is represented literally not just by filming at night, but there are ruins in the city that they're running they, through. Yeah, they climb run, down yeah. these broken, mm-hmm. bombed out buildings. Yeah, and there's this one lot that's just bricks of a bombed out building. And then finally descending into the sewer, mm-hmm. showing all the darkness of the city that they're trying to clean up. And all the filming in that sewer for like 10 minutes. It's great. All right, They so just I, keep filming all these areas of the sewer. I'm like, this looks amazing. I do want to talk about that ending scene, uh, partly for that cinematography. But also, uh, there's this interesting move I think happens where uh, we've been following Holly Martins the entire film 
in those last and 10 then, minutes. And then it's all Harry. Harry Lime is the protagonist. He is the focus of the narrative. And now Harry Lime's really been the focus of the narrative the entire time, even when he's not present. Uh, but but not like this. Well, Orson Welles really doesn't have a lot in this film. Like I said, uh, Harry Lime doesn't show up until an hour into this four, yeah. hour and 45 minute film. Couple of scenes. So no, he has three scenes. He's there when for the reveal, which is mm-hmm. like a minute. Yeah, he has the, the dialogue the on the Ferris yeah. wheel, which is uh, almost his only speaking part. The uh, and he has when is the uh, that monologue little... because that's not on the Ferris wheel, right? The it, uh, that's right after right they, after get, they off. get off. Yeah, okay. that's, that's at the so, end of that scene. So that's all one scene, and then you have the chase through a sewer where he doesn't have dialogue, and mm-hmm. so to have such a big presence in the film when physically you're not there most of the time mm-hmm. is a really impressive feat of writing and i've also got to say like orson wells performing it just does great there's a moment yeah, that, in, the, in the sewers where he's being chased but there's nobody around him he could just hear people and he's he's been running for a while and he's breathing quickly and you can see his breath and you can see they're really small spurts of breath and so you can tell he's stressed out he is anxious He's not breathing deeply. He's not breathing smoothly. He's not even breathing like someone who's been running. He's breathing like someone who's scared. And, and like, I can see that happening, which means he's doing it on purpose. And there are a lot, I think there are a lot of interesting things done also with the editing of that chasing mm-hmm. through the sewer, um, where whenever we see uh, Harry Lime, the camera always seems to be getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. The background, like these tunnels, they get smaller and smaller around him. Mm-hmm. And so you can just visually feel the, all this pressure building up on him. And the fact that they did this in two separate locations uh, really gives an impressionistic feel to the editing mm-hmm. where, like you said, you have those moments where hairline stops and you can hear people chasing him, but you have no idea of the locations. Yeah. Like you can't tell, Oh, they're on these three sides. He has this one way to escape. It's like, I, th- no, I just yeah. think he's surrounded. You have no idea where anyone is in location to anyone else, but it works. Mm-hmm. Because it's creating that mood. It's not about the logic of the chase. Yeah. And it's just echoey and the water. So you're hearing people stepping through water. You're hearing people shout, but it's being reverberated and distorted. Oh, when you hear the gunshots go off, know. like you feel like the mm-hmm. the terror that it would have been like, was that my guy? Or was that my guy? Like, was that my guy yeah, getting they, shot? They've got or like my guy shooting at someone else? Like, for everyone else, because yeah. they, the, 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 they show the gun echo or like you hear the gun echoing and you see these reaction shots of people just looking around because they can't tell from what direction the gunshot just mm-hmm. came. And there's a, the moment where they turn the light on him. Like they've got him down a, a, a particular, um, not hallway, but tunnel. And you could hear him. And they keep, they have this, they like show like three people with flashlights and nobody's turning it on. And you're just waiting. It's like, you guys know he's there. Why aren't you turning on the lights? And then you turn it on and it's just, it's just massive. Yeah. You know, his presence in that moment and he's, he's caught. And And, uh, it's like, this is really good. It's one of the great chase scenes in film. Like this film has so many great moments of filmmaking Mm -hmm. and film history that are involved. Like the great chase scene, the moment of his reveal. Um, but it, I guess narratively, Orson Welles isn't there a lot. But part, well, I think it's a it, it's a statement of his charisma. Like yeah. I said, like his, his walking on for his first appearance in the film, it is just uh, an actor owning the screen uh, at, without dialogue, without a whole lot of action. He's just something about his performance pops right off of the screen, and you can't look away, and you feel like you know so much about this character in that facial expression that he gives. And you haven't had and anything. Well, no, we've had all this buildup mm-hmm. about Harry Lyme and who he is. And but, but not a lot about like who he is as a person, just who he is what he's to done. these other people. Yeah, what he's done. And to like, you have to have the right actor to be able to fulfill those expectations. And in this case, they actually exceed those expectations, mm-hmm. which is really hard on casting. Um, and so being, being able to have such a big presence in such like a few moments where you're actually on screen is both a testament to the writing and a special testament to the acting. Yeah. Cause I mean, and they also like, they've surrounded him with these other characters with, um, with the, the Baron and the doctor and the Romanian friend, and they strike you as shady. Yes. And then you see Harry and he doesn't seem shady. 
he seems straightforward and everything. Not until he opens his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Like there's something about it where it's like, okay, like this Baron seems not on the level and the Romanian seems not on the level and they've all been obfuscating the and doctors not on the level and, and double talking and all these things. And then even when Harry is talking, he's just laying it all out there. He's not obfuscating. He's not double talking. He's not hiding anything from Holly. He's just like, you're my friend. I'm going to tell you all this stuff and then I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And this is, this is what I do. Like I am so confident in my ability to handle this situation and intimidate you by being straightforward, by revealing everything instead of hiding anything. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And this is a, one of the uh, things I read about was that this is really about like, well, with uh, Orson Welles performances about this dangerous charisma and the Mm -hmm. dangers of charisma that, uh, if you're like if you're charismatic, you can kind of get whatever you want, and at a certain point, you might start believing the hype. Like you might mm-hmm. believe that you you are this good, or uh, that you can get away with anything. And I think that's kind of the point we're at yeah. with Harry Lime is uh, he's had this descent. Obviously, like he didn't start out as a racketeer, especially when you get into those prequels. You can't <laughs> have him start out as a racketeer, right? Um, and so it's this descent where he gets into this point of view and he's able and he justifies it in his own mind when they're on that first wheel as he explains it, but it's also such an important location because they're up above the world and he looks down and he says like, uh, if I gave you $20,000, he, he calls them those, specs or yeah, dots, or dots something. like one of those dots on the ground stopped moving. Would you really care how many 20 times can I give you $20,000 before you start worrying about how many dots have stopped moving? And so that point of view of looking down from above Mm -hmm. is so important to that scene where this is one of those things where, yeah, the location, the mise-en-scene is important to the storytelling because it doesn't have that same meaning anywhere else. Yeah. But that, like, you can see how twisted his point of view has become where he's like, individual lives don't matter. Governments don't view us as individuals. Why should I? Yeah. John, uh, we recently had you on as a guest to talk about Boxers and Saints for us. It was about a half hour ago. For listeners, it was a few weeks ago. Um, and in that text, we we talked quite a bit about the moral ambiguity and how like struggling to understand some of the themes and dig into it was uh, something that, that proved pretty rewarding. Uh, I, I think this is also a text that obviously has a lot of moral ambiguity, but I don't find myself like struggling to engage with it. It's more just like, I really kind of enjoy sitting in this world that's being created in the third man. Uh, why do you think maybe that we, we have those different reactions to texts that we're like on the face, we can say for both of them, like there's no real heroes or villains and there's like dissents and, and, you know, problematic motivations and all these other things. Uh, but why, why do you think we have such different reactions? Uh, well, part of it's going to be the medium uh, engaging with the film is different than engaging with a graphic novel and that'd be a whole separate discussion. <laughs> But in, for this particular story, I think part of it is there, there is a bad guy and there are good guys, even if they are morally compromised. And part of it is the seeing Holly Martins come in and uh, especially kind of post-World War II, the United States was now on the world stage as a superpower. Uh, and Holly Martins kind of represents that attitude. He comes in and he sees all these problems. He says... I can fix this better than you guys can. Yeah. It's like, I'm a writer. Let me be a detective. Yeah, right now. I, I can solve this case. Like you, uh, it's the British uh, police force. They mostly mm-hmm. engage. It was like, you guys don't care about this case. You're obviously not putting in the effort to solve it. I will take care of it. I'll, I'll just you. take care of it. Yeah. I'm and, a little bit drunk, but don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, but as he descends into it, he realizes, Oh, the world's a lot more complex than I thought mm-hmm. <laughs> where he finds out that, no, like we're not worried about the death of Hairline because we were we're worried about the racket he was running. Yeah, we're worried about what he had yeah. been doing, not yeah. that he's dead. And then putting it in this particular city where you have each of the allied forces have a section of it. Mm-hmm. And so trying to do police work in that setting. And they say, and I think um, the opening has kind of this monologue about how the city is set up. And when I was watching it, my initial response was, oh, Wes Anderson does this <laughs> like, like Wes Anderson is, is copying this or, you know, and, and that's the initial reaction I got was mm-hmm. like, Oh, here's this kind of like quaint, but like um, straightforward narration to set up like this kind of comedic situation. And every 
um, police unit is made up of one person from each of the four districts. Yeah. And they don't, they can't talk to each other because they don't have common language, except there's like an American and a British and they have a common language, but then there's a Russian and a German or uh, uh, French, French. They, um, so the Viennese speak German. Okay. So that's where that part comes in. And so, so, yeah, so if somebody speaks German, they can t- at least talk to the people. It seems like half the film is in another language. Yeah. And, and so you get kind of set up with this, like, Oh, this is pretty funny. And then throughout the film, they talk about, it's like, Oh, this is really difficult. Yeah. I, I, when you hear that setup in the prologue, it's like this feels like uh, you know the the opening of a dystopian novel <laughs> <laughs> where they're going to be talking about uh, and, and like it feels so exaggerated to say like there's four quadrants literally policed by four different regions with different languages and different rules, but they have this shared central area that's policed by all of them. You're like this is a little over the top for your fictional dystopia. And then you're like, Oh, this is real history. Yeah. This really was what Vienna was like immediately after the war. Well, it was um, like even to film there, they had to get permission from the four mm-hmm. different groups from all four of them to film the, this in Vienna. <laughs> yeah. And so you have this very, you start to realize, Oh, the world's much more complex than it, what we thought. And, you know, I think America after world war two partly had the point of view of, Oh, we just had this great victory. We're now uh, economically stable. We're we, a superpower. We've taken care we, of things. Yeah, we we can come in and solve everyone's problems. And this is, I think, a commentary on that of having an America come in with that exceptionalist attitude and say it can't work that way. Once you get into real world situations, once you get into the real politic. But it, I, I, okay, I, I know I've praised like <laughs> the, the work of how it's set in Vienna a lot, but like just to create a story with that immediacy in that setting. Like this feels like the, like I said, it feels like the setting for a dystopian novel or like some, something that a writer today would look back and say, what a, a, a weird moment in world political history that you had these four, like Vienna divided into quadrants with four different world po- powers over them. And, the, and then they say, Oh, I've got to set a story there because it must've been so rife with tension and drama. That's you know, well, inherent. So, and they just did it right premise. away. Well, it's all of, and they actually did it right yeah, then. And, well, it's all of Germany after World War II as well. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're like, mm-hmm. this is a microcosm of all these real world problems uh, where a black market could thrive. Mm-hmm. And so you do end up with, um, I think in this case, unlike Boxer and States, you do have good guys and bad guys. Yeah, but like, like you have definitive lines. Yeah, so, but the bad guys have freedom to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. The good guys are so constricted by these yes. boundaries. And they want like they want to do the right thing, but it's so hard to accomplish that with all these strictures. Yeah. And there's conflict with the other police forces because they want to use somebody as an informant, but the other police force wants to arrest them and and deport them. So this is Anna. Yeah. It's like, like, okay, but like we would like her to be an informant for us. And the Russian uh, police force is like, no, her papers are forged. We're going to take her back. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's, yeah, the good guys are bound by the rules of society and trying by to By the other good guys. Yeah. But yeah, like they're bound by – I don't know how much you want to characterize the Russians in this well, as, the yes. good, as good guys. Uh, we don't get their point of view. The, really the quote-unquote well. good yeah. guys. Uh, and so – but it's even – Major Calloway's British and Holly Martins is American and they have these different point of views of how to accomplish things. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, then uh, I guess also adding the ambiguity is uh, a lot of those – good guys feel like hurdles for the narrative that we're getting. Like they, they're yeah. barriers. And then Harry Lyme, who we discover is the bad guy. He feels like a very inviting presence. Right. Yeah. And that he could, <laughs> like he wants to pull you in mm-hmm. and that he could leap over any hurdle, even though he's stuck in the Russian sector, because if he steps out of it, he knows he'll be arrested. Yeah. But he, fe- he feels like mm-hmm. I can you know, I can accomplish anything. These borders don't matter to me. Because so this is the dark side of American exceptionalism mm-hmm. in this moment, uh, especially when the you have that scene on the uh, Ferris wheel and the two confront them each other, and Holly was really questioning like how did you become so morally compromised? And at one point he said like he says you used to believe in God and the, and Harry Lyme comes back oh I still do old man <laughs> yeah um, and I think it's actually interesting that you, like you making that comparison just kind of crystallized in my brain the similarities that you have between Holly 
and Harry um, at, at, at their kind of starting point. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about like the American exceptionalism on both sides, yeah. you know, both of them are saying, well, I can work around these rules. And for Holly, it's, I can work around these rules and I can solve this mystery. And for Harry, it's, I can work around these rules and be successful in another endeavor and get rich. <laughs> yeah. And, but both of them are saying this system's not working. I can totally work the system my way and get what I want. Yeah. And, then- and you just have a split at a certain point of what they want and whether or not they are willing to compromise to the system for what they want. And I think this is also why it's important that as a British writer, doing mm-hmm. this, that you don't have a lot of British noir. That wasn't the mood uh, after World War II. Uh, it was very much more of an American tradition. And if American had written this, uh, I think it would have been a very different story where Holly does cut through everything and is able to confront his friend at the end and have this great moral victory, like many of the... Uh, like like a classic American yeah, hero. Yeah, like Sam Spade. I was just gonna, I, I do just want to say uh, Hitchcock is a British director who gave us some of the greatest noir. <laughs> yeah, but, you, I'm saying, but he came to America to do a lot of them. You yeah, he's working in the American studio yeah, system. You don't associate... For, yeah film noir with British. And so I yes. think that yeah. a British writer bringing this different point of view of saying, all right, let's take this American archetype and really throw him into this situation mm-hmm. and see what happens. I think that's where we get this uh, different, um, uh, more, more, uh, more early relativistic or morally mm-hmm. ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. And they do throw in some jabs about American literature. And, and how well, well he can converse about America, well, about literature. Well, I think that's also important to setting up that character. He is a writer of Westerns. He is yeah. supposed to be. He's a, he's a pulp fiction yeah, writer. He's supposed to be the American cowboy coming in to solve this problem. Yeah. And you see that thrown into a real world situation. Cowboys can't solve these things. And, uh, and you were touching on like the, these different points of view and how it influences the way the story is told. I think it was in the, uh, the Ebert review. It mentioned that Carol Reed worked for a British war documentary crew. So like he was like, like intimately familiar with the, the carnage of war and like what the bombs were doing and that kind of destruction. And I I think it was Ebert was, was saying like, that's maybe one of the reasons why we see like the rubble and the destruction is so centered uh, in Mm -hmm. this film is uh, like, he's moving from documentary to, to narrative obviously, but he's still uh, dealing with, uh, the 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 impacts that he saw when he was doing that documentary work for the uh, for the for Britain, right? Well, I can definitely see that with um, how he frames the city, uh, because um, you do have kind of have to have some way to frame all the context effectively. I think coming from a documentary background helps with that. Should we talk some about Anna? Well, the, sh- we have to acknowledge that uh, 1940s, um, not great women characters. Yeah, that's most, super progressive. In a lot of cases, this is not one. I, I, I really try to find out if this could pass the Bechdel test. It almost does because she has a convers- uh, a few lines with the old uh, woman owner of mm-hmm. uh, the place she's staying, the old woman who always walked around. The wrapped in a kind of character. Yeah. Uh, wrapped in a comforter and so they do have a, a line that passes that's not about a boyfriend but it's not a conversation mm-hmm. so it can't pass the Bechdel test um, but yeah like Anna's an interesting question because you're ta- taking these noir tropes she's not the femme fatale no but she's not uh, the angel in the household mm-hmm. either these you know, those are more Victorian models, but, but you can apply them to uh, film noir pretty well. Yeah, she's not a threat. Um, and she, she's she's not trying to tempt Holly off the path, even yeah, though she's, he falls. she's not the temptress stroke. Yeah, she, even though he falls for her, she's not actively yes. tempting her him. Yeah, and she's. Well, I mean, and, she, and she's, and not she's even, still pretty distant when he's like saying. You know, I'm just a guy that falls in love with women. <laughs> Wink. Yes. And she's kind of like on the other side of the room, like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, she's not like even like a fast talking um female character either. You know, she's she's competent. She's confident in her choices. She's making choices, even against what we would say is better judgment about well, Harry. She, like there, there aren't, there are only a few uh, 
instances where she has agency. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that she loves Harry, despite knowing he's a bad guy. Yeah. She, yes, he did favors for her. She got, He got her the forged papers that mm-hmm. she needed. And so it would be easy she to say- She owes something Yeah, to it would be easy to say that she owes her or he was- or she was manipulating him as the femme fatale. But no, I think she honestly was in love with Harry because she's willing to forgive his awful, awful crimes. Mm-hmm. And she, when she thinks that he's alive again, she is rejecting her chance at safety Yeah, to, to be with him again and to protect him. And so, yeah, like she doesn't have a lot of agency in this suit, partly the situation where, um, she is a Russian in the wrong sector and she can't es- escape these mm-hmm. things. But the one thing she does have agency over who she loves, she mm-hmm. does actively take. And she always chooses to protect him. Yes. At, at her own risk. Yes. Yeah. And that is her choice. She's not being forced to protect him in any way. She hasn't. In fact, actually, she, she's giving given every incentive to give him up. Every incentive to give him up. And actually after, uh, we have the funeral at the beginning. After that, she has no direct contact with him uh, almost at all. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one shot where um, just before they do this uh, sewer chase where she's able to see him and she tells him to run. But like she has no contact with him. She doesn't, like, doesn't know he's alive for most of it. She just hopes. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Joseph? I think you guys have hit everything. I, <laughs> I thought about jumping in a couple times. But I'm like, nope, they got it. You're, you're, you're running the, running that conversation just fine. Um, yeah, like eh, she's not as frustrating as like Ilsa from Casablanca, who um, we weren't wild about, about <laughs> if you think back uh, to that discussion, but not as uh, progressive as you would see in, in female characters written today in, in a lot of works written today. Not all works written today, but in a lot of works written today. Uh, and, and so she's kind of, uh, you know, she, she's uh, she's there. She's a, she's a presence in the story. But she, uh, I think, like you said, definitely avoids some of the more problematic tropes, um, but maybe doesn't step into some of the roles we'd like to see uh, for, for, for characters uh, in, in some other ways. So kind of, kind of there in the middle, I think. I think that's a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, touching in some some other characters, I thought Calloway turned out to be very interesting when at first he seemed antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ultimately I ended up liking him. And I, I also need to throw out that his second in command, whoever he was. I think it's, I think it's Sergeant oh, Payne. I'm just devastated when, because like I said, I, I watched it not paying super close attention mm-hmm. the first time and then watched it again immediately after. And I thought when I was getting into, because I, you know, I saw the finale. That was one of the parts that I had seen most clearly um, the first time. And so when I'm watching it for real, the second time, I thought that it was Callaway who got shot by Harry. And when I saw that it was, it was the, the other guy who had been nothing but nice and pleasant to everyone. He had read Holly's books he yeah, had he lent was... them to other people. He was he was always nice to Anna. When I saw that he was the one that got shot, I was just, I was so upset. I and, was, yeah. I, it was terrible. Yeah, I just couldn't stand it. Great working class accent. Mm-hmm. He's um, just, he's just been nice. He's followed orders. He's tried to be helpful. And then he gets shot by Harry. And, and I was just, I was, I was kind of okay with it being Callaway because they had the adversarial relationship. Mm-hmm. And then, when it wasn't when it wasn't Callaway, I was like, not this guy. This guy's been so great. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's another remarkable thing in the writing is this is not a lot of characters. No, like this is a handful of characters. Not even a dozen. Oh no, it's uh, we could probably count them all. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think yeah, like even that with that when this is a su- truly supporting character. He does not have a, a big role to play. He's there to uh, support. I mean, everything still, he's done is, is following someone's orders. Yes. Yeah, so you still feel for him. Except for buying the balloon. That was his own initiative. <laughs> right. From the balloon salesman to get that, but it was to get that balloon salesman out of the way. Um, but that's another remarkable thing. If you look at the storytelling and on, and the filmmaking, uh, within five minutes of that opening, you're at the funeral for Harry Lyme. And, in a couple of shots, you see all the major players. Mm-hmm. Like you are introduced visually to everyone you're going to need to know, except Pescu, who comes up later. Uh, you introduce everybody 
within five in the first five minutes and you get to know him later. And I, I think that's just a stunning feat of filmmaking to be able to get everything set up so quickly. Like it well, almost feels like you could make a play out of it, mm-hmm. but you can't with the sets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I, th- I think one reason why there can be such economy of character is that, again, this isn't a, a really character-driven piece or even plot-driven piece. It's about the feeling and mood and atmosphere. Uh, I, and it's super successful at that to the point that um, you, only having that handful of characters, it, it, it works perfectly uh for yeah, it because vienna cool. is a character right <laughs> you know yeah, like, it, it would feel overstuffed if you had more characters with speaking roles uh you know and, uh, it, it would it would detract from uh what we actually have mm-hmm. and i, I do want to speak a little bit about the mise-en-scene in vienna we talked a lot about the outdoors or the bombing but even indoors you have these really interesting sets where it's these huge vaulted searings giant doors where the characters feel dwarfed by the city mm-hmm. by their setting and I don't know where they found these locations. That's uh, just Europe. <laughs> but also but the uh, it's, it's like anytime they're in a stairwell or anything mm-hmm. like that, you know, the, yeah. the architecture is overwhelming uh, the, yeah. the people. Yeah. So while it might, maybe Europe, they make excellent use of yes. it. <laughs> yeah. They, they really use it. And I mean, the ancillary characters that you do see, they use them, you know, mm-hmm. when there's a group that are investigating the murder of the, the porter. And you've got that the little boy who starts calling Holly a murderer and they all chase after him. Oh, and I like, want to mention that scene. That's another thing that should be a gif floating around the internet forever. It's a little, little kid running. Like, he's the like, murderer. murderer. He's the murderer. <laughs> dad, dad, dad. He's the Papa, Papa, murderer. <laughs> um, but I, that's another one of those great shadows because Holly runs off and the little boy chases after him. With a big shadow. It's this huge shadow on the wall of, chasing of, after of Like Holly. a five-year-old yeah. boy. But that, like that just shows that like these giant shadows, these giant buildings, uh, the city overwhelms mm-hmm. the characters. In yeah, various, and, and in they just frame ways. it fantastically. Mm-hmm. So you see, you see the big streets, you see the big buildings, and you see the big sky. Yeah, all all in a single shot, and then you see big shadows and people, and it just it works. Well, it's so thematically important mm-hmm. that they do it that way. Oh, Joseph, I did want to ask uh, with the Dutch angles. What, what's the deal with the Dutch angles? I mean, I know, like, is it symbol- symbolic of people being crooked with what they're saying? Because it seems to straighten out quite a bit towards the end. Right, for, uh, for, listener, on, for listeners who don't know, Dutch angle is where the camera is tilted. Yeah. And so the ground is not level. It can be Your as much as 45 is in degree. A, is in a, vert- uh, you know, a horizontal line. Um, yeah. So, every, so the backgrounds are all tilted. Sometimes the characters look tilted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it creates... Uh, like a, an unsettling effect in the viewer. Uh, and, and that is part of the, you know, the mood that is being established in the film. I think it also works particularly well in this one because of all the rubble, like everything is off balance in the city uh, as far as setting. And, and so it thematically connects with, uh, you know, the, the imbalance of both the setting and the story where uh, the characters can't quite get a firm footing on what is the truth and what really has happened to Harry Lyme. Uh, so, so you often do see Dutch angles used in uh, mysteries uh, and uh, in in um, sequences where, uh, as viewers, you're not supposed to feel like the character is on sure footing, be it either like because of uh, something that's imminent in their outcome or because of uh, the you know where, just where they're at in the narrative, uh, and and so it it is just part of uh, the creation of that mise en scène. I think for this one. Yeah, it's a sign that something either in the world or in a character's mental state is off balance. Uh, in this case, it's much more about the world mm-hmm. being off kilter. So I, I think you mentioned like the the Dark Knight. It gets used often with the Joker. I think in the Dark Knight, you'll see some Dutch angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when well, and Batman um, in the, the '60s TV series. Yes, uh, I, I, and um, I'm not. I'm trying to think of how it gets used in that one. I, I, I think mostly the villains, didn't they say? Yeah. Aren't there quotes about, you know, they always did the villains at, with Dutch angles to show that they had a crooked sense of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think that 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 feels right. It's been a while since I've actually sat and watched one of those episodes. I should do that again. There's just too much media out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah and and so in the in the world of film noir like with batman uh it's the you know you've got the his rigid worldview and then you have the the villains who are seeing things differently a lot of times you'll have those dutch angles there and, and most uh, iconically with the joker i think um for this just everything is is off <laughs> all right the, the entire story it, like to the point where it's it's a murder mystery without a victim <laughs> you know it's it, well, everything is there, off. Well, there is a victim just not the one you but, but yeah. nobody that was being investigated yeah. no harbin was being investigated. well that was not not yeah not we, as dead we never see harbin he's not a character like harry lime is yeah i hope uh the radio show showed how he pulled that switch um actually the bbc uh recently re-aired some episodes i was able to listen to them i doubt they'll still be up they usually only leave episodes up for about a month after broadcast i don't know when this episode's gonna be released but uh i was i took it that the switch was just that they had um holbin run over by harry's driver yeah and harry was the third man carrying him over and then harry's doctor came and identified him and then there was no yeah, further investigation. That's how the mystery works here. Uh, the, it was really weird because the opening of every episode of the radio show was Orson Welles. And he's like, there's a shot rings up. And he's like, that is the shot that killed Harry Lime. How do I know? Because I am Harry Lime. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh, I, like, I was the third man if you saw the film. <laughs> but I... I'm also dead now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But this is a prequel. Yeah, like, but uh, like, it's like Harry died that day. But how did he live? <laughs> and it's a it's a lot of cons, and sometimes he gets the money. Sometimes he's being conned in the end. But he's a, he's a, much more of an anti-hero mold. Right. Where it's uh, well, I don't like that. I, yeah, like where he's yeah, he's definitely doing bad things, but it's. Not with uh, malicious intent. It's it's a little more cheeky. Yeah. Whereas so, this is, why I, should I value human life? Yeah. So I don't know how they got from that to um, his descent to his role here in the in the Third Man, and it's really odd to think about. Like there was a TV show called The Third Man, but it only works in the context of this one story. Yeah. And the film. So why why would he refer to himself as that in all these other uh, media? Oh. I had no idea about so many of the spinoffs that existed from this film. Uh, all right. Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap up this episode. I would recommend listeners that you go watch this again. It's streaming on Netflix. So uh, go ahead and pull that up. If you have next Netflix account or if you borrowed someone else's password, uh, go, go ahead and, and uh, do that because uh, this is just, it's worth watching and and like not the distracted watching where you have your phone and your iPad open next to you and you're glancing down, like just, drink in the visuals that are presented in in this film it is just masterfully done uh do you guys have any final thoughts just reiterate what you just said (laughs) all right well that is going to wrap up this episode thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we'd like to thank nick english who designed our logo and scott tofty who composed our theme music if you just if you enjoyed this episode you might want to go check out episode number three when we talked about casablanca that was before we figured out what we're doing but uh it fits dramatically <laughs> with this episode Man, that was a long time ago. This is going to be like episode 234, 235 when it drops. Uh, or you can go check out episode number 138 when we talked about The Big Sleep. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. All right. All right. Um, should we talk uh, about this really okay. good old film? Okay. You're recording. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to... Oh, my chair. Oh, <laughs>